Hi, I'm your host, James Barrow, a creative turned marketing director with over 20 years' experience in the advertising industry. Join me as I go behind the scenes with a range of innovative thinkers. Hear what inspires them, their processes, and the methods to their madness. Find insights that can help unlock your creative potential and apply them in your life, career, and business. Right here on The B-Side with James Barrow. What does innovation in the retail space look like and how can we develop more impactful customer experiences? Hello and welcome to episode 30 of The B-Side and our first episode for 2022. I'm kicking off the year with an awesome chat with Matt Ewell, CEO and founder of The General Store, which has quickly become one of Australia's leading agencies dedicated to retail strategy and innovation. He discusses the differences between online and bricks and mortar retail strategies, the two types of shopping experiences, what the future of retail looks like, and it's not all Apple stores and Amazon, guys. We reflect on the rising power of retail brands with their ownership of rich audience insights and complete control over vast retail ecosystems. He picks my brains on what makes for an excellent agency-client relationship, given I've worked on both sides of the fence, and we cover the challenges faced by the retail sector, tackling some tough questions like why delivery is outsourced to third parties, why customers should carry the burden of trust with an online purchase, and how improvements could be made to the online transaction model. This was such an insightful and refreshing chat and a cracking episode to start the year with. I thoroughly enjoyed hearing Matt's thoughts on retail marketing, customer experience, retail branding, innovation strategy, and I really hope you enjoyed as much as I did. Cheers. It's the first episode of 2022, and I'm with Matt Newell, who's a dear friend of mine. I'm breaking the, the fourth wall here. I know I shouldn't do that. It feels like the fifth wall. I think it's like a fifth wall, but <laughs> we've, been, we've known each other for more than five years at least. It's yeah. been... Almost two decades, maybe, I think, or maybe not quite, maybe. Oh, no, we've known each other for 15 years. 15 years or so. Five years. Jesus, Jimmy. 15, mate. We're in the G-Store offices. We happen to be in the boardroom. We were previously on a boat, so this was a continuation (laughs) of which Matt was the captain. And unfortunately, I didn't get a chance to um, interview him. I did get to speak to Ali Nasseri and Sophie Paulin, but they're no manual. So (laughs) we're here with (laughs) Uh, Love you guys. But we're, we're here today. We're going to talk about retail, retail strategy, retail marketing, retail creativity, innovation, and Matt Newell has some thoughts on that, as well as what the future of retail may look like for both local and international retailers. So I'm going to hand it over to Matt. Uh, why don't you just tell us a little bit about your background, what you do, and where you've come from? Yeah, yeah. Well, background, I'm basically a failed musician. You know, my high school years and uni years was, I was really into music and most of my friends were sort of musical friends, but I always had this other side to me around like, I don't know, like economics and sort of logical problem solving and things like that. And when I kind of went into the workforce, it was actually my dad who somehow kind of tricked me to get into advertising. He said, he said something like, he's like, oh, you're a great musician. You're going to have such a great um, career. But how about just as a day job, you look into this advertising industry thing. It's really creative. You can use all your kind of business economics um, training that you had at university. You know, it's just a side thing. Music's the main thing. And of course, um, you know, within 12 months, it had completely switched. Like I had fallen in love with the mm. ad industry. Mm. My first job was at a, um, agency down in Melbourne called Badger. And they were kind of like the big independent creative hotshop of, um, of the Melbourne scene. And my first account was working on the BMW account. Oh, right. yeah. And I just loved 
the ad industry. It was like love at first sight. What was it about? Was it the business side of things, as you say, with that sort of problem solving, strategic yeah. problem solving in business? It was everything right. to me. Right. Like the, right. the people were incredible. They were mm. creative and bright and mm. fun. Yeah. Probably my three favorite yeah. You know, things to, to kind of immerse myself Creative, in. Creative, bright and fun. Yeah, yeah. you know. Yeah. And so, and I kind of went in thinking, oh, look, this is fun. I went in as a, the most junior shit kicker um, suit in the agency. Think of the most junior person in a whole business. And then I reported to that person, basically. <laughs> right. So, I was as junior as they came. And and the typical thing going into that world is you go, oh, like the creatives are on a pedestal. And you're like, oh, you know, that's where I want to be. And I felt oh. like I had a creative background. But after a few months in that world and hanging out with these incredible people, I realized it was actually the strategy people mm, that I yeah. really loved and who lit my fire and I was really inspired by. And sure. um, I went up to the planning department in those days and said, um, I will do anything to hang out with you guys. I'll yeah. serve sandwiches at focus groups. I'll do your filing, just whatever. I'll do it as an, in my spare time while I do my, my day job that I'm getting paid not a lot of money to do in those days. But um, yeah, so I don't know. I quickly, I think, recalibrated and went, actually, my sights were sort of set on the creative side of things. But then I met those strategists and just mm. went, man, th- this is this felt like home. What was it about the strategy that you really enjoyed that blew your mind? Yeah, I think it's the light bulb moments. Yeah. You know, you can sit in a room um, with a bunch of confused People are not even confused, but there's a lack of clarity mm-hmm. in the room. There's way too much data, way too much information. Yeah. And the great planners that I used to work with could just come and like switch on a light and everyone would go, uh-huh. mm-hmm. now it makes complete sense. This just went from incredibly hard to incredibly easy. And I, I loved that. And mm-hmm. it's inspiring for people. It's inspiring yeah. for creatives. It's inspiring for, you know, the business people to all of a sudden have clarity. And I think I got hooked. Hooked on, on that. that. Yeah. 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 And it feels like that's a theme that's recurred through much of your career. You can talk to us about where you went after Melbourne and Badger. Mm. Uh, it feels as though you're helping a lot of these clients through their journey of building brands and successful businesses, mm. whether they be retail or otherwise. Yeah. Well, I can tie those two together because I left Badger, which was a very like creatively driven agency. Broadly, the next major move was to um, an agency called IdeaWorks, which is where I met you. And that agency was all about retail and the retail sector. And I fell in love. I got bitten by the retail bug Mm -hmm. for sure. And the reason was they're such complex businesses, Mm. particularly from a marketing and customer point of view. So, you know, if, if you're talking about FMCG from a customer experience point of view, you've got a tin of baked beans on the shelf. And your job is to get people to pick up that tin of baked beans. So, advertising plays a huge role, you know, above the line, outdoor telly, whatever. And then you hope that you can win them when they walk past that shelf. And so, it's a pretty kind of two-step customer journey. Retail is a very complicated customer journey. You know, you've got the advertising component, the digital component, the e-commerce, the physical stores, the, the um, you know, change room experience, the people. The, mm, mm. There's just And then the loyalty programs and the data that comes back off that and how do you bring people back in. There's just so many problems to solve. So, I kind of took my love of clarity and light bulb moments and then found a home for that in retail um, where there's lots of complexity, lots of challenges. And, and so, really, that's led to the third big step for me, which was the general store, which yeah. is kind of pulling together- the creative ambition and the, the the power to 
change behavior creatively that I learned at Badger with the love of retail that I learned at IdeaWorks and pulling those two things together. Mm. Just backtracking a little bit, um, hanging with your background a little bit. Where are you from originally? Like, where did you grow up? I was uh, born in Papua New Guinea and grew up in Sydney, which your mates, um, Glenn Barry and Ali Nasiri, love to make uh, fun of me. <laughs> <laughs> they, they state that I overclaim the hardships of living in New Guinea when really I left New Guinea when I was like one year old yeah, and had yeah. a really comfortable upbringing yeah. on the lower north shore of Sydney. So. Yeah, yeah, I think I had, uh, you and I had have spoken about this. Uh, my mum lived in Papua New Guinea for some time. She was stationed there after finishing um, you know, the teacher's yeah. school and I think it was still governed by yeah, Australia, Australia back then. So That's interesting because yeah. my mum did the teacher's school. Oh, right. Um, yeah. uh, I think it was called a SOPA. So, Papua New Guinea, you have no memories of it, obviously. No, well, I yeah, do yeah. because we used to go back for Christmas oh, holidays because right. okay. my grandparents were there. Yeah. And, yeah. man, it is exotic and tropical and yeah. abundant and it's so interesting from a, you know, um, cultural perspective. And Well, I love the link between um, Sahul. It was once the landmass before the last Ice Age that was linked. And um, the indigenous tribes of Papua New Guinea and the linguistic structures are quite um, similar. It's really quite a fascinating thing, just the link um, and the mm. proximity. And apparently, I, apparently, it's the most linguistically diverse, diverse country yeah, yeah. in the world. Like, yeah. It's, it's one of the most, um, like from a minerals point of view, one of the most abundant, countries in the world. My my uncle used to work up there um, uh, for one of the mining companies and his mm. job was to liaise with the locals and look after the locals basically with yeah. hospitals, medicine, education, stuff like that. They were saying that the, the mountains up there are just so abundant that when they grade the roads to build roads to get into the mine, gold just falls out of the roads. Oh, like, God. You know, I mean, Isn't it, that amazing? It, it is actually yeah. a bit of a, yeah. a tragic scenario up there, it a country is, yeah. that's actually so wealthy. Mm. It should be a tourism mecca, but yeah. it hasn't, um, you know, solved its political yeah. um, issues up there. And it's a geopolitical hotspot, really, isn't it? Mm. With um, flanked by, you know, mm. some of the powerhouses of Southeast Asia. Mm. Mm. Yeah, you can imagine... Um, and oh, there's incredible poverty there, so and mm. crime, which is mm. a, another issue. But that's not what we're going to talk about in this <laughs> podcast. So, um, Jimmy, we can talk about whatever we want to talk. About. It's, your, it's got your name on, on yeah. the door, mate. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Who's some of the who who have been some of the big influences? You mentioned your, I guess, your parents, your yeah. mother, and so on. Yeah. Who are some others that oh, have look, influenced you? Maybe more so professionally. Yeah, yeah. Look, uh, I like this question because I have um, some very clear ones on, mm. on that front. So, definitely my dad, he was the one who got me into advertising. Two of the co-founders of Badger would be um, the other ones that I really look to for inspiration and advice, Jack Room and Rod Bennett. Um, uh, Rod Bennett is the B in Badger and Jack Room is the R in Badger. Oh, there you go. Um, and um, massive inspirations. And I still talk to them and seek their advice and, and find them massively useful. Um, How so? Why were they inspiring? I, I, the, the term mentor gets bandied around quite oh, a lot. But yeah. would you say they were mentors? 100%. Are they there for you now? If you 100%. 100%. Right? That's fantastic. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And look, I mean, I, I you know- Mentor is a funny word, I suppose, but I use it for sure. Like mm. these, these, those three people I've mentioned so far are definitely mentors and people I, I look up to. Um, and then the, the two others would be, um, Tina Jameson and John Cole, um, who ran Mitchell Media up in Queensland. Like they were in my Queensland mm. days. They kind of took me under their wing. Sure. And, um, uh, you know, really kind of helped me. But, you know, I, I mean, I can tell you incredible stories about those two in particular, but, 
you know, these are people who I can just talk to about the business. Mm-hmm. There's no judgment. They understand mm-hmm. the industry. Um, they're supportive um, and they've got good ideas, sure. you know, and they're not necessarily, I think the, the art of a mentor that these people all have is, you know, they're not telling me what to do. Mm-hmm. They're sounding boards. I can sure. bounce problems. They understand the world enough. They've probably faced similar challenges and they mm-hmm. can talk from experience. Yeah. You know, it's not sort of, I'm very skeptical of advice is cheap, yeah. you know, but experience yeah. is very yeah. valuable. The experience of starting your own agency must be quite a daunting one, and I'd imagine you would have drawn on the knowledge or the advice, mm. not that they tell you how to do it, but they mm. give you some thoughts based on their experience, like of Jack Room and Rod Bennett. Mm. Did you draw on them when you were starting the G-Store, and maybe you could talk a little bit about that I did. process? It was yeah. interesting. You started um, in 2012. 2012, right? yeah. yeah. Um, it was interesting those five people all had different views on oh, me right. starting yeah. the business. Um, my dad was worried because mm. it's hard. I guess he knew, mm. you know, he'd seen a lot of people do it. And, it's and a very he, traditional kind of um, attitude though, isn't it? You know, you, yeah. Because yeah. you're venturing into uncharted territory. Yeah. And look, it? my yeah. family is, a, you know, my dad worked at Time Magazine for mm. like, I'm going to say 30 years. My mum has yeah. been a teacher now for 50 years, 50 years this year, which is a huge mm. achievement. Mm. Uh, you know, so in my family, entrepreneurialism just isn't mm. isn't a thing. It's sort sure. of a corporate kind of vibe, I guess. So I guess a bit of a fear of the unknown there, and a fear for my well being, and that's all cool. But that's mm. cool because that that makes you think harder about yeah. what you're doing. I had an interesting chat with John and Tina, um, and they were actively trying to talk me out of it. Mm. Um, I don't know if they would remember this conversation. They probably do, but they were actively saying, "Don't do it. The world doesn't need another ad agency." Um, you know, uh, yeah really tried to actively talk me out of it. When I then went back to them and said, really enjoyed the chat, I'm doing it anyway, they were like, awesome, we're 100% behind you. Um, but I think it was that reality check. Yeah, like, they yeah. wanted to make sure yeah, that I yeah. was aware of the worst-case scenario. Yeah. And Jack and, Ru- uh, Jack and Rod are just like, um, we believe in you, Maddie, and you'll just go do whatever yeah. you want. You know, so I had this sort of mix of, yeah. of feedback, yeah. I guess. The reality is, though, it was- way harder mm-hmm. than I ever imagined. Yeah. The way that I made the decision to go for it was I imagined what's the worst case scenario and would I be happy with it? So, the worst case mm. scenario was- So, I was 32 when I started it. That's so young, man. Really Actually, is. honestly, too young. Yeah. Too young. Yeah. Um, no, sorry. I was 34. I was 34. Well, still. I mean- Yeah. I was definitely too young and I didn't have a profile or experience or network to really pull it no, off. No, and I remember that. I mean, you were the fresh-faced, like, no, IdeaWorks was bought by WPP, but yeah. it wasn't the largest um, yeah. agency. We had some amazing clients, though. Mm. And, and to your point around customer experience and owning that whole customer experience, the reason I worked there mm. is because I had skin in the game right across everything from brand idea, because being starting out yeah. as the head of art, mm. had the opportunity of working through the digital aspect of things, the e-com, the store design, brand identity, yeah. you know, store builds, the advertising. Awesome. Nowhere else do you get the experience no, of owning awesome. the complete customer experience. So, I could imagine having that knowledge mm. and that depth of knowledge across broad touch points mm. would have really helped. It did, yeah. Look, I mean, I think I was confident that I could do the job, but um, other people didn't know that I could do the job. Yeah. You know, I had a small group of people who believed in me and thank goodness for them. They backed me they backed the G store very early and wouldn't be in business without those very early people who supported us. And, you know, super cheap auto, we were talking about them. They were one of the people that, that 
got on board sort of earlier, like uh, as soon as all the non-competes finished and everything, they were, you know, ready to go and took a huge leap of faith. And a few clients did that and very grateful, very grateful for that. But I guess making the decision to do in the first place, I went, what's the worst case scenario? Mm. And can I be happy with that? The worst case scenario I could think of was um, I would lose everything I owned, but I would be young enough to get a job and go again. I knew I could get a job um, and um, earn decent money back in the ad industry. Mm. So, I sort of thought about that worst case scenario and then went, yep, I can handle that. I'll go for it. But the reality is, as I moved through those early years, the first three years were so touch and go financially. Mm. It was horrifying. And we came to the brink twice. There's twice where I can remember that I thought, we're going to lose this whole thing. Mm -hmm. And I remember staring and looking over the edge of that cliff and I was so scared. And I had a young daughter at that stage. I remember kissing my daughter goodnight and going, shit, if I don't turn this around, I'm going to have to haul this kid out of this her little bedroom and go find, go and downgrade and sell the house and all that sort of thing. And I remember in those times, I just found it doubly stressful because I was like, fear of losing the business and and all the work that that we'd put into it. But also there was a sense of disappointment that I I thought I could handle this downside and I realised I was going to really struggle if that downside materialised. And the reality is, you know, the G-Store is now, you know, reasonably successful um, business, but so much of it is luck. I think about both of those times, what saved the business was luck. The phone just rang, yeah. a job came along. Yeah. And, you know, I think we can take too much credit for our success and our failure. You know, luck yeah. plays a, a yeah. significant role, I think. Yeah, it's interesting. We touched on this in the last episode around there's a certain – it was funny. We we had a little, a couple of drinks towards the end of the episode, and we started talking about the very nature of ideas. And if you see them as just pure positivity, stuff just seems to happen. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I've always known you to be quite an optimistic. Yeah, plug to the optimists. Hugely, yeah. yeah. <laughs> plug to the optimists, exactly. Bing. <laughs> um, optimistic person. Have you read the Alchemist? It's no. a great book, but no. it's essentially this story. Yeah, and it's a very common story. People persevere until they get to a point where they've almost lost all hope, but it's always at that point yeah. where something happens that sparks mm. salvation. Mm. And it was essentially the whole premise behind the book, The Alchemist, yeah. which is a brilliant Well, book. I can yeah, definitely relate to yeah, that. Yeah. yeah, for sure. But look, I think optimism is a hugely powerful force. Like there's a mm. saying in mm. the investing world, you know, that um, pessimists sound smart and optimists make money. Yeah, yeah. You know, you yeah. can you, – it's easy yeah. to see – the, the downside in everything. It's totally easy to do that. The harder thing is to go, I'm going to take a risk. Um, I'll have a go. Um, the downside exists, but the upside's awesome and worth going for. Yeah. So I guess what you did say is you prepared for the worst. Yeah. Um, and if we talk about travel again, uh, those seafarers, I mean, you, you're a captain of a boat. You've got a boating <laughs> of, license and a beautiful the, boat. Of the good ship optimists. So the good ship optimists. We'll pull it back there somehow. So the, the, the crew that we go out boating with on Matt's boat is called the optimists. So that's, that's for, for our listeners. That's a bit of context for you. But, um, just drawing back to optimism, uh, and the leap of faith. Imagine only a few grandparents ago, 
um, going to new lands and the risks they had to take traveling by boat to mm. far-flung countries, whether they be across the pond from the UK to America or even further south to Australia. Um, many people died on those voyages. And But imagine the business owners that went out to venture into new lands and mm. the risks they would take. I wonder if just that's just the very nature of business and it's always been... You know, there's always risk. Mm. There is always risk. It, it's a lot less likely that you'll sink with the ship, but um, you, you can sink in other ways. Mm. So, I always, yeah. whenever we're working on either things with the clients or things with the general store, you know, and someone has an, an idea to try something new and we'll kind of assess it and people go, well, that's risky. We could lose money doing that. Yeah, yeah. And I kind of go, well, it's kind of risky if we don't do it. Yeah. You know, if you stand still. Um, that feels very risky to me. I'd rather keep moving. That's the point, that there is always risk. Mm. Yeah, there is. Without, I mean, without risk, there is no business. Yeah. It's always been the case. Yeah, yeah. It's a funny way of framing it, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. and it's weirdly, I think, in our kind of the, the kind of corporate culture in our Western mm. culture is is very kind of, you know, like my dad was in a job for 30 years. My mum's been in her job for 50 years. But if you look at the immigrant culture in Australia, that would be um, the biggest percentage of um of entrepreneurialism within a subculture within Australia and and that's a culture that's taken huge risks very comfortable yeah. with risk taking and i think you know with the the um our um, broader australian culture has benefited so much from that immigrant risk taking you know in australia like our parents had corporate jobs for you know a long period of time i think my generation, there's a larger group of people um, who have gone out and taken a bit of risk, but the generation behind us are yeah, all yeah. fucking entrepreneurs. Yeah. You know, yeah, I, like, I sure. think, yeah. you know, I think our parents were shocked to hear that um, that the sort of Gen X um, generation would contemplate having two or three or four different careers, like they yeah. would have one career for life. I think that the millennials and stuff coming up behind us will not have four or five different um, careers. They'll have eight or ten different businesses yeah, and business yeah. ideas. and Just hanging with the entrepreneurial um, spirit of things, what do you think makes for a great retail brand idea? Mm. Look, so interesting. Something I've been reflecting on recently. You know, in advertising, you're kind of taught to worship the idea, this thing called the idea, right? And- I've been, I don't know, I've been sort of rethinking that a little bit recently and, and really kind of focusing like more, like the idea is sort of the means to the end, but it's not the end. So what's the important thing? The important thing is the end. And the end thing that matters in my mind is impact. And so I, I've sort of been shifting my thinking a lot to move away from obsessing about the idea and obsessing more about what's the impact we could have or what's the desired impact we want to have. Um, and I think it sharpens your thinking a lot more because you can get, I don't know if you've experienced this, Jimmy, but, you know, working on creative work, you know, as you do, sometimes you can go around in circles a bit on obsessing about the idea or the purity of the idea or whatever. Yeah. And it can, it can lead you around in circles a little bit sometimes. Yeah. But I think you know, you need to know that the idea is strong, but I think how do you know it's strong? By putting the filter of the impact over the top of it. So, what's the desired impact that we're going for? And the cool thing about retail, right, is it's very easy to see. They're visible customers. So, FMCG, consumer goods, for example, you can't see because it's behind the veil of the the, re- of the supermarket's 
um, sort of shelf in the supermarket's data. Like the retailers have all the data. So FMCG guys find it a bit harder to see. But in retail, you can see the impact really clearly. And after doing it for so many years, you get to learn what works, you know, really quickly. So you can kind of take the retrospective learnings proactively forward. If marketing is all about understanding your market and providing value to them Mm. in the retail sector, whether it be physical bricks and mortar or online, Mm. you have a very intimate understanding of the behaviours of your shopper and Mm. what the triggers are that can shift them on on a dime, Mm. ultimately. And and, and from a macro level as well. I mean, Mm. we've gone through COVID. We can see how that's Mm. affected Mm. retail shopping behaviours. I I kind of wonder... um, what other, uh, I guess, channel could offer that experience? I can't think of one. I mean, but for events. Mm, events, or, good. Or, or hospitality. Yeah. Do you know? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I, events is a good, is it, is it probably a good parallel one? Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, look, I, the, the other point I want to make about the, the impact and the development of ideas for retailers, right, is that in advertising, we're taught to worship the idea, but in consumer land who are shopping retail, uh, retail businesses, they don't care about the craft of advertising in any way, obviously. They, they want a great experience. They want their products. They want the, it to be affordable, available, but they want a cool experience, right? Um, so, the idea itself doesn't matter because it's, you know, about that kind of holistic journey. So, you're actually looking for impact across the store experience, the advertising, the digital thing. And that's kind of the bigger opportunity for impact. So, if you're too obsessed about an idea, basically, it can force you into single disciplinary thinking, like this is an ad campaign and the stores or whatever are just part of the rollout. But um, but I think focusing on impact puts you more in touch with the kind of customer lens and that invites a more multidisciplinary thinking. So, like when we're working on problems, for example, we could have an uh, advertising creative working with an architect and a digital technologist mm, mm. man i mean back to the idea works days like a, that yeah. the ideas and the process of that is so much more mm. interesting i think I than think so too, yeah. what's the advertising idea yeah mm. it's interesting isn't it it's because i find um you're right it the traditional advertising model is very much focused on outputs mm. so the output is the thing that they create not the impact the thing <clears throat> creates holistically yeah. with other touch points. Yeah. And so we get so focused on the thing that's going to win the award mm. and that thing is the ad. Mm. It's a lot harder to measure the efficacy of something mm. that is a holistic customer experience. Mm. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, and I, I think you're right. I think we, we have traditionally in the advertising industry got so hooked on the TVC. The, but some agencies come in and present one thing, mm. one execution. And then when you say this is part of an integrated campaign, mm. it's just cutting up that one thing and yeah. spreading it across. And because mm. of the background we've come from, it's like, that's not what it's about, guys. No. It's how can you mm. really create that impact across all those touch points in a way that is relevant mm. to that particular touch point, not you know, because yeah. you're trying to retrofit everything back in. Yeah. It's the difference between inputs and outputs. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So, the advertising thinking or the store design thinking or the brand ID thinking, um, they're the inputs. Yeah. The output that we want, the outcome that we Outcomes, want- Outcomes, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Is the customer impact piece. Yeah. So, yeah. as long as you're getting that outcome, 
you know, the, the journey to that, the inputs can vary greatly. Yeah. Um, but the outcome is the thing that you don't want to vary. You, you yeah. want you yeah. want a specific outcome. So, when outcome. we can interchange the word impact with outcome. Yeah. And if you're focused on outcomes first, yeah. then the way by which you deliver yeah. on those outcomes or yeah. achieve those outcomes yeah. is irrelevant. Yeah. So, as long as it reinforces whatever mm. the brand is, whatever that mm. positioning is and for the brand. This was the, my greatest challenge and one of the core reasons of setting up the G-Store really is growing up as a- strategy planner inside an ad agency, Mm. you know, you get trotted into client meetings um, and it's like no matter what the client's problem is, the answer is always an ad. Yeah. And that's a problem because that's focused on the input. Like the input feels like the end game, but really it's the outcome that's the end game. Ah, totally. Mark Ritten pulls his hair out talking about this and trying to reinforce it. He talks about marketers uh, broadly, clients, let's use the ad terminology, clients being – very focused on tactics, yeah. almost to a point where they'll brief the agency straight, mm. straight away, but off the bat, yeah. t- around the tactics. Mm. Whereas realistically, we need to understand and bed down those strategy, the segmentation, the targeting, mm. the positioning, and from a retail perspective, what are we trying to mm. position in our consumer's mind, mm. um, and what are what are the outcomes we yeah. we want yeah. from a marketing plan and objective standpoint mm. before we even worry about the tactics. Mm. It feels like that's the approach that you're, yeah. you're taking. Desired outcomes. The G, for G sure. store. Yeah, yeah. I love that. Mm. I love that. Um, what makes for a good client in your mind? Oh, look, good, good question. I think if you ask, I mean, you get lots of different answers. I guess you're asking me. So my answer would be, um, look, I like collaboration. I like when, Clients come to us and go, here are the outcomes we're after. What are all the different ways we can approach it? Um, I like a more informal relationship. You know, people, even at the G store, I pull people up on this all the time, is going, well, we can't start our work on that because we don't have a brief. I'm like, well, we're not order takers. Mm. We're partners. We're consultants. I love that. I love that. I would rather that a client... um, calls me up or we go grab coffee or honestly we solve so many problems with our clients just driving home and I'm chatting to the CMO or the CEO on a car ride home. I reckon we make more progress there than in like the really formal, really expensive kind of uh, processes that we often get engaged to do. So, I love the informal problem solving. You need formal process as well, especially for large businesses where there's lots of stakeholders and lots of rigor required. So, both things do have their role. But if it's all formal and no informal, um, I think it's far less productive. Um, So, yeah, those are the client relationships that I really enjoy. And again, another great thing about working uh, within the retail sector is almost every retailer that operates in Australia is headquartered in Australia. So, you can talk to the CEO and that's the decision maker. Like, it's not going back to Korea or Singapore or London or New York. And um, so, you can actually solve problems really quickly here. So, I like that. I like jamming and collaborating with smart people who don't pretend to have all the answers and we don't pretend to have all the answers. But usually between us and the client, we've got enough intellect to identify the problem come up with some pretty red hot solutions for that problem and then pull in a team to, you know, make it amazing. Um, so, yeah, they're, they're my most enjoyable client experiences, more informal, collaborative relationships. So, Jimmy, I've got a question for you. Sure, mate. As, you know, you and I have worked together in the past and loved working with you, um, you know, one of the best creatives I've worked with. Thank um, you. 
And then you've gone on this journey over to the marketing side of the fence. What advice would you give to agencies, having been deep in agency land and now over in marketing land? What do agencies miss and what do we get wrong? Look, I think most of the agencies I've worked with have been absolutely fantastic hubs of creativity filled with amazing, incredibly smart people. Um, and I think don't ever lose that. Don't mm. shy away from that. That's probably the first thing. I mean, <laughs> it's true when you say a client goes to the ad agency and they expect just to have a great time. So don't lose that love and that passion and that creativity because for most clients, especially in marketing, even in my vertical, I'm lucky enough to still work with creative agencies, but mm. the creative aspect of it is one part of the job. It's the funnest part of the mm. job, but it's one part of the job. My job as a marketing director is strongly linked to objectives, objectives and so on, you know, and, and so my world is not as uh, focused around creativity all the time. And I think it's important for agencies to remember that. Mm. So keep, maintain that fun. Ultimately, maintain that spirit and that passion, that energy. Mm. The second thing I would say, and to back that up, is my story or the journey of ensuring that we're doing the best and most creative and the most effective work doesn't end when the agency team leaves the building. Mm. And it doesn't end with the outputs. You know, we're judged by the outcomes mm. of those outputs. Mm. And the emphasis from an agency perspective is very much the tactical aspect of the marketing plan mm. for us to be able to get those tactics or executions, however you want to frame it, approved. There's a huge amount of work. It's like the iceberg analogy. There's a huge amount of work that goes on beneath that. And if an agency can understand that journey and really understand who the stakeholders are behind the scenes and how important they are in the scheme of things from a from an organizational dynamics perspective, who the person is that's really pulling the strings, because it won't always be this here. It could be the board of directors. It could be. But you've got to both understand that and prepare your client for the tools or the the, the resources they need mm. to be able to get their buy-in. So what does that look like? I guess it would be have the creative work in there. We expect it to be brilliant. So that's another thing. Also. We expect the work to be brilliant. That's just the get-go. Don't explain why this is going to be brilliant. We expect it to be brilliant. But almost give us the equivalent of how the work on a page will help us achieve our objectives. So always bring it back to the objectives. And always think both short, so what are the short-term objectives that this campaign will help us achieve, but what are the long-term brand-building objectives? Because clients live in that world between the short and the long all the time, and it sounds like it's a it's something that we're sick to death of hearing the Les Bennett and Field kind of approach, but it's 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 a reality. Don't show us award-winning one-offs, which I think have flooded the the industry. Award-winning one-offs. Um, I'll use Burger King. I know Mark Ritson spoke about this recently, but Burger King is probably a really good example of outstanding one-offs. But if you ask people what Burger King stood for, no one could tell you. So always keep the long-term brand building positioning piece in mind. Don't just show us one-offs. And always show us how very quickly at the start of your meeting how you could almost start with that. Don't even show us work. So we're going to show you some really cracking campaigns and, and give us the executive summary on how they will help us achieve our objectives and how both in the long-term and the short-term. It's that thing of focusing on like the impact and the Absolutely. Outcomes. Just like what you said, the yeah. impact and the outcomes. Like yeah. I cannot tell you enough how important they are. Mm. You know, and people say, oh, it's because clients are 
you know, oh, they're so focused on numbers and research and all that stuff. It's because it doesn't end with us. Mm. You know, we've got to convince a whole bunch of people who think marketing are the people that color in, do the coloring in in the back corner. So we've got to fight that battle as well. And if we're just presenting a whole bunch of tactical outputs without any rigor around it, without any depth, without anything that sort of shows how we're going to move the needle from a business or organizational perspective, then we just look like fluffy idiots. Because if you don't, your client's going to do it. They're going to take your presentation. They're going to spend the time thinking about how they can sell it into their stakeholders, senior stakeholders. They might repackage it. They might take some stuff out. They might, they, they might have to do a summary page. They, you know, so they're going to do all that. So that's, and that's really quite important. Be challenged. Don't be afraid. Like I said, I started by saying, you know, we expect the work to be great. We expect the work to um, be outstanding. Don't think we want mediocrity. If your client's feeling as though you're pushing down a road of mediocrity, it's because you're not paying attention to what we just talked about. You're not helping them sell the work in. So if you spent more time helping them sell the work in, they will have a far better chance of selling in the stuff that is the little more left field and you know, where you push the boat out, you know, and you challenge them. You'll get better work out of it, you know, I can promise. So it's a funny thing. It's a sort of – it completely sp- – spins or turns things around from the way we think about yeah it's not just about the work Mm, you know mm, mm. it's not just about the work it's like brilliant work is expected yes focus more on the impact and ultimate outcomes of it absolutely um and then set the client up to communicate that link between the exceptional work um and the outcomes. outcomes. And then don't be afraid to challenge on the Don't way. be afraid to challenge, but you've got to do it. Gotta write that. this down. <laughs> this is gold. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I guess that's it. It's funny you say that because a lot of people have asked. I've never really gone on record mm. with that information, but, um, and there's so much more. Spend as much time in your client's organization as you possibly can. Even if it's a more formal way, you might not be able to do it in informal ways, but. Do it. Set up as much time as you possibly can because you'll start understanding some of these things because, you know, we hide behind briefs in creative and you don't see the big war and peace story that sits behind that, you know. So, yeah. Completely agree. <laughs> agree. <laughs> I hope that helps, guys. There you go. <laughs> when you do get a call from someone in the C-suite, what are some of the problems that they look to you to solve? Yeah, there's usually two clusters of issues. Mm. There's the, like the core business stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and usually the retailers that we work with typically are very established retailers, you know, turning over maybe anywhere from, you know, 300 million to a billion, you know. So, they're big established um, retailers. But there's always stuff with the core business that needs optimising, tweaking, you know, but it's it's iterative stuff. Then you've got the other bucket, which is the future um, it's small plays, but high risk um, l- opportunities for learning, which if go well, we'll pull it over into the core um, the core business. So, there's a lot of that kind of, um, yeah, futuristic, a bit more experimental, a bit more, well, tactical in that it's not part of the core program, but it's sort of, sort of you know, the expression shooting bullets before you shoot cannonballs. Yeah, yeah. You kind of line up a trajectory, make a small investment, make sure the trajectory is right, then load in a lot of gunpowder and fire a big cannonball. So, there's a lot of shooting bullets yeah. that we do um, yeah. with clients. So, mm. you know, and at the moment, COVID has been an absolute, obviously, game changer mm. for the retail sector. It's actually largely been pretty positive financially. Yeah. Um, but there's, it's created a lot of 
cause to pause and rethink the future trajectory um, of businesses. So in the last year in particular, we've been doing a lot of very serious 10-year planning, not not philosophical 10-year planning, but mm-hmm. really redefining the future of a lot of these businesses. So, mm. yeah, so those would be the two buckets, that really mm. redefining stuff, but then also the iterative optimization of the core business. You talk a little bit about, I know you speak at various events, and um, you talk about retail innovation. Who do you think are the most innovative retail brands? In Australia, if not the world? Yeah, look, good question. I mean, I I would define innovation, firstly, not as technology. I think Mm. those two things get confused. I would define innovation as people or businesses who are just trying new things, things that Mm. haven't been Mm. done before. Mm. There's a lot of that happening around the country, particularly within the retail sector. I mean, at the moment, a lot of the landlords, like the centre groups, you know, who own Westfield, um, the vicinities, those sorts of, you know, shopping centre companies, they're massively rethinking their mm. businesses at the moment and turning them from transactional places with food courts and car parks yeah. to how can these actually be really meaningful places culturally, societally. It's good to hear that they're looking at that because the alternative is lock people to long-term leases and all that sort of yeah. stuff. You know? Well, the, 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 a quick history lesson on retail, which I think is super interesting, right? The way that um, I guess the generation before us, mm. so, you know, like up till, you know, let's say the, the, um, the 1900s, you know, the <laughs> 70s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, 1990s, for example, the way that retailers won, it was a supply chain win, mm. right? Whoever could get, say- a brand, Coca-Cola, um, from, you know, wherever Coca-Cola is made, on a boat, into Australia and onto a shelf. Whoever could do that cheaper won. Mm. So, the, the the manufacturer brand did all the customer-facing, um, you know, brand building stuff and all Coles had to do was say, we've got it cheaper than Woolworths. Mm. Moving into the 2000s, the retailers started realising, actually, we need to build brands as mm, well. And that mm. that's a powerful customer acquisition tool because, mm. because Coles and Woolies both have Coke and they both have Pepsi. Yeah. So, they started to learn a bit more about differentiation and winning customers. And you know what? Retailers have done an amazing job oh, of that. Totally. If yeah. you look at some of the top ranked brands in the world, they're retailers. Mm. And that's really depositioned the power play. So, the manufacturer brands are far less powerful in these relationships Mm. now. People choose to shop Coles over Woolies. I'm a Woolies shopper. I'm not a Coles shopper or whatever it is. And now, it's the manufacturer brands who are begging to be a part of that. Mm. So, for example, I always hate the definition of retail versus brand, right? Because mm-hmm. it's really inaccurate and it leads to oh, really 100%. poor thinking. Yeah, yeah. I always refer to retail brands and manufacturer brands. Mm. The power of the retail brand has really risen in the last 20 years. 100%, um, yeah. And that power dynamic has completely flipped. They have, mm. they own the customer, they own the customer data, and they've got the power in the relationship. Retailers will continue on that journey through mm. innovation and in many ways are leaving a lot of the manufacturer brands mm. behind who, sure. you know, a lot of manufacturer brands, their idea of innovation is a different pack. Yeah. That, that's if right. you talk yeah. to retailers, their idea of innovation is we're going to launch a virtual store and yeah, we're going to yeah. learn, launch virtual product within that store. and Stores in the metaverse and so on. 100%. Is, is I mean, retailers are 100%. Well, the MI3 re- recently released a report and it's got the industry sort of in a bit of a tizzy around retailers being able to, because of their their size and scale and the amount of channels they have at their fingertips, they're looking at 
um, immediate space within that retail footprint, within mm. that retail ecosystem. So selling that space to advertisers, mm. so like the Nestle's of the world using, mm. whether it be online or in physical form, yeah. these channels, mm. because they've got such reach. It's 100% right. And retailers are very good at owning the mm. ecosystem. Yeah, Private label, for example, in retail will own that ecosystem. They'll own the customer ecosystem. Yeah. They'll own the media ecosystem and so i think when it moves into virtual worlds a hundred percent yeah they will do that yeah yeah I, I just wonder if you were a retail brand the question would come to mind around what channel would be the most effective and efficient way of delivering both the experience the brand experience mm. and the the product what would you say to a new retailer why would you need a bricks and mortar store a way to think about that is that a store centralizes the experience. Mm. The online world kind of decentralizes the experience. So if you look at the iconic, for example, uh, an online, um, an online retailer, but they create an amazing customer experience, but it's quite decentralized. You mm. know, you've got the website, fine, that's centralized, but then you've got all this amazing content, fashion stuff, lifestyle stuff that they produce. Then they'll host an amazing, um, catwalk event. One time it's in Brisbane, another time it's in Sydney, you know, so mm. it's decentralised. Um, then they'll pop up at a music festival. Yeah, yeah. You know, so these are all kind of building on the brand and the customer experience and building that kind of world in people's hearts and minds, but it's not centralised in one mm. in mm. one spot like a store. Sure. It's decentralised, mm. both mm. both in a digital capacity and a and physical a, yeah. capacity. So the answer would be you've got to do both. Well, you don't have to do both. Here's the other thing, the other distinction I would make is – Fundamentally, there's two types of shopping experiences. There's the kind of chore routine shopping experience, and then there's the I'm shopping for fun and mm-hmm. pleasure experience. If you're a chore shopping in chore mode, then just straight up online is absolutely fine. So mm-hmm. that, like Amazon, is the best mm-hmm. example of that. I'm just buying laundry powder and margarine, mm-hmm. and it's routine chore-based stuff. How do we brand those experiences because even though it's chore mode i still expect a certain level of brand consistency yeah brand consistency absolutely but what makes an amazon experience amazing is it's so easy it feels good yeah you know it's it's but it's a practical thing it's like Mm. it's cheap it's easy Mm. damn that felt good a good experience say of going to an apple store is completely different. I actually want to spend time. I mean, imagine if Apple got you in and out really quickly, you'd be a bit bummed. Mm -hmm. You know, you want to go in there, you want to spend time, you want a slow shopping experience, you want to immerse yourself in the world, do a free class while you're in there, lust after all the product. Well, Apple call that experience the store, the town square, yeah, Mm -hmm. and a very considered customer experience. Mm -hmm. But my point here, right, is people get these conversations confused. Mm -hmm. You know, you hold up an Apple store and then – all the kind of routine shopping retailers go, well, that's ridiculous. We would lose money if we did yeah, that. That's wrong. Yeah. It's not that it's wrong. It's that it's it's a totally different, different, different shopping different experience. experience. Yeah. 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 So Bunnings, you know, is, a, is another example of it's so big. It's so got everything. The prices are so good. It feels good. Yeah. But it's not particularly like an experiential shopping no. um, experience like 
you know, an Apple store or like shopping mm. fashion can be. I have read a report from KPMG and every year they look at the world's best brands. Now, this is a KPMG customer experience, excellent report. And they've defined six recurring pillars that all of these highly successful brands uh, demonstrate consistently. And, and they are personalization, integrity, empathy, resolution, meeting expectations or exceeding them. Um, can I say... And minimising friction. Completely disagree with that. Really? Oh, I mean, firstly, you know, their motherhood statements. That's the kind Mm. of research that that people put out. Have you read it? It's quite comprehensive. It's a bit light on the detail. Right. But these themes, the KPMG. No, look, you read. I haven't read that report, but Mm. I've read hundreds of reports like it. And they're basically the kind of reports that you can't disagree with. You know, mm. someone mm. comes out and go, "Our oh, customers want a frictionless experience." You can't go, "I disagree." Yeah. They want a fr- they want a difficult, frictionful experience. <laughs> you know, they're basically motherhood statements. What part? What part? What about personalization? Because that was the number one. Hundred percent no. Really? Yeah. No, I mean, not. Sorry, I shouldn't say hundred percent no, but to to put that forward as an essential ingredient, no, mm. for no. A, for a, for a good customer experience. Person. No, yeah, of but don't you, you don't feel go like to, don't- you don't go to Bunnings and go, "Oh, I want a personalized." customer experience here. You don't mm. go to Coles and go on a personalized mm. customer experience here. You know, in some areas, yeah, f- mm. for sure. But to put it forward as a generic must-have is mm. absolutely ludicrous. Mm. I mean, look at Shoes of Prey. It was mm. all about customized um, shopping experience and and it didn't work. It didn't it work, was, yeah. It was yeah. too hard. It, it actually yeah. created so much friction in I, the experience. I guess that- one of the examples they give is both the Apple Store and personalization, I think they define as feeling as though you're um, – your unique needs are acknowledged and, and addressed. And, Nobody and, goes into a retail store. Yeah. Expect, you know, go to a doctor or go to a therapist and you want a <laughs> unique experience. Yeah. Go, to, go to the iconic even. You don't need a personalised, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. 100%. No, and these okay. sorts of reports absolutely yeah. bug me because it's weird. Sorry, KPMG. <laughs> uh, I'm not sorry. Look, yeah. I'm sure there are good people at KPMG, but it's. Yeah, yeah. I don't want to go to Woolies and feel empathy. Yeah. You know, yeah. 100%. I don't even want to go to. No, a but I mean, if you, for example, I'll give you a really shitty example. The Okay, I've got a bugbear with Woolworths at the moment. Sorry, Woolworths. <laughs> They've got the odd bunch um, oh, yeah. aisle, which I wholly support. Now, the odd bunch doesn't mean the rotten bunch. <laughs> right, now, yeah. now, I don't like that experience. I walk out of there yeah. feeling annoyed because. Mm. Woolies is my brand. Mm. The expectations not met, which is goes back to time and expectations exceeding them or meeting meeting mm. them or at least exceeding. Mm. So it's not the rotten bunch. I, and I get the garlic because I hate I'm doing the garlic and mm. the half the garlic cloves are mm. rotten mm. and they're at the same price point as the mm. full. So you know what I mean. Mm. And you kind of go, Wah. so there's a few little things like that um, yeah. that I think, and that's just one example. That's where. When the expectations aren't met, it can really erode the brand over time. You know? Yeah, hundred percent. But I, I kind of feel like that. That's that's just I don't common know, sense. That's that, just good. That's obvious. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's right. a bit of a motherhood yeah. statement. But also, the the bigger point is, yes, those things are sometimes right and sometimes wrong. So I wouldn't put them forward as mandatories yeah, at all. Yeah. I've always wondered, and there's a bit of a. It's not meant to be a provocative question, but um, if I'm a solely online retailer, mm. there is absolutely no other way of my customer getting this product but to have it delivered to them. Two questions. One, if your whole model is centered around the delivery of the product, why isn't delivery always baked into the price? Why is delivery always almost 
outsourced to the third party. Sorry, the delivery guy's problem. Yeah. It's like, I don't care. Yeah. I've ordered it from you. I want it from you. I'm, don't, I'm not going to deal with the delivery guy. Mm-hmm. So in traditional transactions, time eternal since we've been trading seeds for, for clams, clams, there's always an instant transaction and a level of mm. trust. Mm. Uh, with online retailing, the burden of trust favours the vendor, right? not the, yeah, the customer. customer, because mm. the customer shoulders the burden of trust until the thing arrives yeah. safely. Yeah. And there's a time yeah. period. And it's, it, it goes against our natural instincts of this mm. transaction, the very term transaction. It mm. happens instantaneously. I guess the question three would be why and could, and talking about innovation, could we improve that? Mm. Could it be that um, the funds don't get released until the courier says, mm. I can confirm I've delivered this? Mm, mm. You know, you, because most of the time, if mm. it's of anything of value, you've got to sign for it. Mm. So you've got to leave it. Mm. So we've got all these things already in place that yeah. we can do that. So yeah. imagine yeah. how that would incentivize the delivery and how you could brand that experience. And customer uh, brands, retail brands could start saying, we can offer a better mm delivery process yeah. as part of our brand experience. Yeah. Do you yeah. know what I mean? I wonder. So I know there's a lot to unpack there. Um, look, this is, um, you know, a, a problem challenge that we're actively working on with some mm. clients at the moment. So I'll have to be a little bit careful about how I answer it. But um, what you've highlighted is is a huge challenge. It's mm. the Achilles heel of online retail and they compensate for it in other ways. Sure. Um, through experience or better prices or, or whatever it is. Um, but yeah, you know, owning the customer experience up front and then, um, deferring the customer experience to oh, some totally. random courier company or delivery company is hugely problematic, mm. um, for, for online retailers. They know it. Um, it's very hard. You need to get to enormous scale to take ownership of that. Sure. So, you know, Coles and Woolies um, have started sort of building out their own mm-hmm. networks or at least, um, you know, having branded trucks and things. Appliances Online um, and Winning Appliances are another group who have made that leap into owning the full customer experience. So, Winning mm-hmm. Appliances, you know, you you, you purchase, you know, a fridge or whatever. It's delivered by a Winning Appliance truck with winning appliance people who come in and give you this amazing service. And so you have the service extended, right? But most people aren't doing that. It's a a lot of online retailers would love to do it. You need huge scale, particularly in Australia. It's a very hard country to execute delivery in because it's, it's so, so large um, uh, geographically, but small from a population point of view. So Australia is particularly hard, but if you look overseas, Amazon is working on this quite hard by doing three things. Um, firstly, doing, um, you know, creating their own owned network of delivery, um, mm-hmm. people. Secondly, doing a hybrid of like an Uber driver type thing yeah, where you can yeah. just log on and be a delivery Brilliant driver idea. for the day. Love that. And then third, using third party suppliers. But in the next 10 years, I mean, this is the, there's heaps of innovation happening in this area, you know, drones, autonomous vehicles, um, delivery from, you know, two days to a fixed address to um, any time, any place, like a movable address, like delivered to your phone, basically. Mm. There's so much innovation, so much money going into this world. No one's cracked it. Um, I think it'll be hard to crack, but once it's cracked, 
someone's going to make a lot of money. I think mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. this is a huge problem to solve yeah. and one that yeah. people are trying. And you guys are actively trying to solve We're, this We one, are yeah. working with a few clients in this area, yeah. 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 Are there any things at the moment that are sort of keeping you up at night with regards to the industry trends? We've just come out of COVID. With this. We've got this Omicron uh, situation, which again is um, affecting pretty much everyone in, across mm. all sectors. I know retail has done quite well. Not just in an online uh, online space. Bricks and mortar retails have done very well. Very well. I mean, twen- um, 2020 was like records. Which is really interesting, retail. isn't it? I yeah. thought it would have been, like logic would say, online sales have gone through the roof. Mm. Bricks and mortar sales, but for places where you're buying necessities. What the, the data shows that it's more by category. Oh, okay. So, anything yeah. to do with the home went through the roof. So, whether that's food consumption at home, um, you know, furniture at home, entertainment in the mm. home all went through the roof. Anything like food consumption out of the home, taint. Yeah. Travel out of the home, taint. I think that travel piece, I was talking to Mike Spikowski at Saatchi's and Toyota have had a good year mm. because people are buying new cars to go travelling yeah, locally. local travel. Local travel. Yeah, so, yeah, 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 yeah. Sorry, yeah, international yeah. travels yeah. Uh, or yeah. interstate travel. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, anything... The home, or yeah, that radius around the mm, home mm. is is sort of the key ingredient there. Mm. So local yeah. um, has done very well. So you've got a young um, Matt. He took the advice and didn't get into um, the advertising industry. Decided to start his own retail brand. Oh yeah. What advice would you give him? I personally have a bit of a penchant for businesses that do something really um, simply, but do it do it really well. Um, you know, like. You know, you get these just amazing bakers and they get a cult following, like Burke Street Bakery, yeah. for example, and it just gets a cult following. T2 is a business that I've always liked, although it's it's sort of struggled in recent years. But who would have thought that expensive tea, yeah. you could build such, uh, you know, a significant business around mm. just doing tea. Yeah. So, I like that. You know, you can do a really simple product idea or you could do a really- simple like customer idea like i'm going to own a customer group you know like rebel sport own that kind of australian sport family kind of and they just dominate in that group so hard and once you understand that customer really well you can build a lifestyle around it like mm. you know we're, we're working on all their new kind of innovation experiential stores and they're they're easy to build because you know what customers want in these sporting subcultures and so owning a really simple product idea is one way. Owning a really simple, really well-defined customer group is another. Looking for that, I guess, centre of gravity. To me, that's the thing that matters. You know, whether it's online or physical or stuff, to me is just executional, simple decisions that follow that. But understanding either how to bring your product to life or how to bring, you know, that customer group um, something really mm. special is is the key thing. So, I would look for some sort of centre of gravity. Again, going back to where we start, you're thinking there and the language you're using there really harks back to impact. Yeah. Yeah. And and when you said centre of gravity, I almost thought, like, I think the one important thing is do you have the right to play in this space mm. as a retail brand? Mm. Like, mm. how can you um, add to the culture, not just take from it, mm. you know, from a mm. transaction not perspective? Not benefit from not it. Not benefit yeah, from contribute. it. You know, mm. Contribute. I think- Bunnings does that beautifully. Mm, you know, great. I, I guess like most uh, business owners, uh, it can't be all, all – look, it's not that it's, 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 it's not fun, but um, you have to do some things on the side. I know you, you're a massive musician, so that keeps you um, creatively stimulated. Are there any other side hustles that you um, 
engage in outside of work? Well, I've got a bit of an accidental um, side hustle that actually um, that you're I know that you're well aware of and very much a part of, which is this sort of optimist group, which I think started off as this sort of minor social experiment when um, I was uh, looking to have a day out on the boat and wanted to invite some friends out on the boat. And I sort of, you know, couldn't really pull together a predefined group of friends, but thought about inviting one friend and then a second friend and uh, all those friends actually being Ali and Glenn Barry, who you've both had on this podcast, actually. And I thought, these are honestly two of the most optimistic people I know. And I thought, oh, God, actually, there's this chick, Sophie Paul, and she's a super optimist. She would get on yeah, really yeah. well with with them. And then another friend, um, Tanya Green, she would get on, like, she's another amazing optimist. And they're all these sort of, all before we knew it, all these, like, optimistic people were sort of available for this day on the boat. And so, we rocked up and I reckon, you know, they all meet each other for the first time. Within five minutes or so, I mean, these guys had just become best, the best of friends. Mm. Aiden Hepburn was um, another key ingredient there who, who you know as well. Then you tip in to that, um, you know, the boat and some amazing music and some great food and it just became such an incredible experience. But then, of course, this is a bunch of people who all revolve around the marketing industry. So, of course, they had to brand it design yes. a logo i think there's a website floating oh, around there's a website there. so floating can, around i haven't seen the website you yet. can yeah. sign I've got you my can, stickers you yeah. can officially sign yeah. up to the optimist now and yeah. look now it's something that we get together you know semi-regularly and chat a lot and yeah and actually although there's a very sort of simple side to it which is just a bunch of people hanging out and and it's lovely and simple there's there is actually i think a really meaningful side to mm. it as well in that this has um become a group of people who are all busy, they're, you know, some are parents and mm. all in their corporate lives and can come along and have some, you know, like just pure joy. There's no mm. judgment. There's It's just fun and it's like child play again. And I think mm. that's something that adults lose is the ability to have that sort of childlike mm. play. It's fun, it's silly, but it's very energising. And I, I remember having you come out on the boat with, you know, a, a group of those people and, you know, I mean, you, it's a time where you can just mm. put all the responsibility yeah. aside and just be a pure optimist. I think I said it. in thanking you for that day, it's something I needed, I yeah. really did, and it really felt like I could reconnect with who I was at my core. Mm. And, yeah, you can get so caught up in life and work and everything else, but I guess the the premise behind that day was there's this unwritten rule that you just have to embrace it and let your hair down mm. and just let your true self mm. shine, that mm. light, that optimistic light, just shine and just share it. And mm. we were we didn't even have the music thing working and we ended up playing instruments yeah. and singing. And yeah. it was one of the best days I've ever had, let alone yeah. – Recently, yeah, yeah. Um, and how amazing then that then you can send Jimmy back into the world, yeah, at full with a full tank. Yeah, you know, you've yeah, got full yeah. James yeah. Barrett going back into the world then. Yeah, and yeah. yeah, so I think I mean it's it's pretty it's pretty great. It's it's it's, and I think it's just like a really interesting social experiment totally in some is. ways, and so. it speaks to mental health as well. I mean, there could be 100%. a really cool little. One day when we get around to it, we could actually share the thoughts and, and learnings and help people establish their own equivalent of mm. this because it's something we all can 
mm. kind of neat, right? Yeah, 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 exactly. And you know, I mean, we've we've had the use of the boat, which has been incredible, but we've also done it just with picnics. Yeah, yeah. You know, there's yeah. something I think about including nature. Yeah. In that moment. Yeah. Um, that's that's a key ingredient. Yeah. Um, but also just a little bubble where for, for mm. three hours or four hours you've just got you know you can just be yourself again not yeah. not not james the dad or james the marketer mm. or whatever you're just james and, yeah. and that's i think something that we forget to do and it's actually really important it's so important to the creative process as well isn't it mm. even if you could do that in a smaller scale separating oh. yourself from what you're currently doing mm. i mean a lot of people talk about that getting out going out for a walk mm. going for a swim or a surf yeah you know reconnecting with nature which leads to, I guess, thoughts around emergence theory, you know, the, the thought being that um, humans operate best when they feel part of something, but they have the autonomy to be able to affect outcomes in their own way. Mm. So not the opposite would be they're being dictated to. Mm. Um, yeah, I, think, I think that's so interesting because I think about my career, like <clears> – <throat> Early in my career, I saw my role as being a person who could do great work and it was very much a focus on the work and kind of if you were in the way, it's like I go around, you get out. I like It was all about getting great work out. But now I see tremendous value in, in creating the environment to create great work. And I think about that a lot now, particularly – like with the general store, for example, like I see my role as being how can I create an environment for greatness? And that means a big shift in the way that I've used to work. You know, it means me giving more space to other people to shine, you know, not over-managing things. But it also means, um, you know, real care around recruitment, making sure that you don't end up with a room full of talented jerks, you know. Yeah, yeah. You can't just chase talent. You've got to chase, you know, quality, decent humans as well. Otherwise, the environment stuffs up. It means like the office space, like we're in our office right now, and um, but making sure that you create a physical environment that people can, you know, do great, great work in. And But it's interesting, like we were talking about the optimist before, and it's a similar thing. Like the, all the optimists was, was creating an, an environment and I think about that at home, like how can you create an environment that's a brilliant, loving place uh, on the home front? Yeah. I don't know. I think the power of environments mm. is is massively important. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's so many parallels there and even with that customer excellence in customer experiences and the, the role of retail, the physical aspect of that and the digital aspect of that, like what is that environment? How can you allow great experiences to emerge. Mm. So, I think the physical environment's important. I think the kind of virtual environment's important. You know, we're very connected on, um, you know, Slack in our in our office and we've made sure that we've got the project Slack channels but all the ba- also the banter Slack channels. So okay. That's really important. Mm. And then I think like management style is really important. I think I would like to think that our management style at the G-Store is very – sort of supportive and we won't get in your way of great work. We mm. want you to do the best work of your career here at mm. the G-Store. Yeah. Um, and so, I think that management style is really mm. critical. Your office is essentially in with everyone else. Like you're mm. there, you've got a stand-up desk, you're yeah. in the thick of it. There's something to be said about seeing the leader of an organisation in the thick of it, mm. you know, and, and 
you know, it's not this top-down, old-school, you sit in the back office bark, yeah. barking orders to someone who then barks them to someone mm, else. Mm. That's saying that two minds are always better than one. Mm. And if you can scale that and mm. implement that mm. rapidly and mm. in an agile manner, surely mm. the outcomes will be far more successful, right? Yeah, totally. Yeah. You know, there's that saying, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. business is about going far. Mm. Um, and you can have moments of going fast when you break into tiny teams and mm. smash it and then come back to the group kind of thing. I think that's fine. But, yeah, look, I mean, I like being in the middle of the office. I like mm. that it makes you super approachable and anyone yeah. can come up to you at any time. I've had an office twice in my career and I hated it. Yeah. yeah. You could go into that office at 9 a.m. and come out at 6 p.m. and not have spoken to anyone. Mm. And yeah. I would rather- you know, be in the way, you know, put mm. yourself in the way of opportunities and put yourself in the way of conversations and be amongst it. If you could sum up your philosophy with a practical little bite of wisdom. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it could be a few words. It could be a quote. Mm-hmm. Uh, what would it be? Can, I'll give you a couple and you can choose. My one from my early days of setting up the G store and <clears throat> going out on my own and starting a business had a lot of people saying not to do it and that you couldn't do it. Um, and not just those mentors I spoke about, they were doing it with a different different thing in mind, but just generally people going, don't do it, right? So, here's my little quote for you, a little Matt Newell quote is, if people say you can't do it, they're really saying they can't do it. It doesn't mean you can't do it. Mm. You probably can. That's awesome. Yeah. I reckon we could take that. You yeah. smashed it. <laughs> my other one, though, my I'm not a big one for kind of harping on quotes, but um, friends uh, close to me know that I quote quote Nelson Mandela um, mm. a fair bit. He's got this wonderful quote, which is, uh, may your decisions reflect your dreams and not your fears. Oh, that's nice. Mm. Yeah. And I think I literally use that. Yeah. When I'm sitting down working out whether to make a big life decision, I go, what are my dreams? What are my fears? Yeah. Um, and I'll always make the decision based on optimism. That's a beautiful quote. Yeah. 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 Well, I'm torn. I'm not sure to go with yours or Nelson Mandela's, <laughs> mate. <laughs> go with Nelson Mandela's. <laughs> <laughs> Matt Newell, thank you so much for your time. Before we go, where can people find you? How do we get in touch? Oh, well, um, you could go to our website, I suppose, would be the best spot, which is um, thegstore.com.au. Great. It's been an absolute pleasure. I love your thoughts on everything retail, everything retail branding, everything marketing. I mean, it's it's a fantastic opportunity to pick your brains. And um, I can't wait till we can get out on the boat once more. And um, maybe this time I can drive. Yeah, that'd be great. I can have a drink. Good to see you, Jimmy. Likewise, mate. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Jimmy. Here's to the optimists. Woo. <laughs> Cheers, man. Cool. All right. We're, we're good. We're done. Yeah. All right. Peace. Peace. <laughs> If you'd like to find out more about me or the B-Side podcast, please visit jamesbside.com. That's one word, jamesbside.com. And you can follow me on Instagram at B-Side Podcast. If you have any suggestions or feedback on the show, please email me at hello at jamesbside.com. And don't forget to rate, review and subscribe. The B-Side with James Barrow is produced by me, and I really hope it's helped unlock your creative potential. Thanks for listening, and until next episode, cheers. Cheers.